You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there, to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industry. Now, on with the episode. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm with Poolkit Agrawal, who is CEO and founder of Chameleon. And Poolkit is the co-founder and CEO, sorry, of Chameleon, which is a platform helping teams drive product success. He enjoys talking and writing about topics that include user onboarding, product-led growth, SaaS, self-service, and UX. Prior to Chameleon, he worked in data modeling and analysis in London, helping unemployed youth start businesses in rural India, and read engineering and and studied engineering at the University of Cambridge. He follows Liverpool Football Club regularly and enjoys meditating and cooking. So, Pukit, that was quite a great intro, and thank you for, for being with me today. Yeah, pleasure to be on here, Paris. I'm excited to chat about some really, really great topics today. Great. Can you just start by just telling us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do? Yeah. So I'm one of the co-founders of Chameleon. Um, we started Chameleon, I remember, a few years ago when I was learning how to use Asana, which is a project management tool, and being quite frustrated that I had to keep switching between using the tool itself and going to the help center to watch videos and coming back again and felt the pain of not having more contextual guidance, more contextual learning. Um, And so Chameleon helps product teams uh, and SaaS companies deliver in-product user onboarding without writing code. So that means if you want to highlight a key feature for a user uh, to know about when they first started, or if you want to nudge them in a certain direction, or if you want to highlight a product change or a, a release announcement or provide some in-product marketing. You can build all of those experiences with Chameleon without having to write any code, which speeds up the process. It allows you to be more data-driven, allows you to experiment, uh, and generally is part of this low-code movement um, of, of avoiding being bottlenecked by engineering. Mm-hmm. So then it must it must not be the engineers and the IT people that are using the product, but it's is it rather marketers or is there other roles in the organization who are the primary users? Yeah, we, we have some marketers, uh, especially product marketers. Uh, as you might know, you know, product marketing as a discipline is evolving from when it was a sales-led world to a product-led world. Uh, and so more product marketers are responsible for launch announcements and driving adoption. So we definitely have some product marketers as customers. We do have a lot of product managers and product teams. And, you know, as, it, as you know, the product-led growth movement evolves, we have product growth pods uh, that can uh, be comprised of a product manager, a product marketer, maybe somebody from customer success or customer experience. And so often the growth teams are, are also leveraging Chameleon. So it, it can be a variety, but anyone who cares about in-product conversion uh, at any part of the user journey or lifecycle could, could, you know, use this Chameleon. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to dig a little deeper into the intersection between product marketing and product-led growth. Can you talk to talk to me a little bit about how those two those two things are are intersecting? Yeah. So what we've seen is, if you know, in 
in the oldish world, we had a sales-led approach, especially for SaaS and uh, enterprise software, which meant that a lot of deals were done through sales conversations, through salespeople. And in that, the product marketing role was to support and enable the salespeople. And that would include, of course, having the messaging, the positioning correct, having all of the materials to enable sales um, uh, be, be refined. And so the product marketing role was more of a, an enablement role. Now, as we move into a product first world where um, there is an evaluation phase and prospects want to try the product and see value in the product, um, and, and there's more of that happening rather than sales conversations, um, what I think we've, we're seeing is the product marketing role evolve to include marketing in the product and about the product directly to the user. Um, and so um, that means that when you're in a trial phase or an evaluation phase, um, how what are the materials that you might receive? Uh, but also when uh, you're as a customer, you your your team is launching a new feature. How do the customers know about that, and how do we market directly to customers? So there's components of customer marketing that product manage product marketers are picking up. So right now it, it feels like it's a, a wide variety of roles and descriptions based on the company, um, but we're definitely seeing product marketers play a more fundamental role. Um, as part of product-led growth in communicating all of the benefits and value um, that the product might bring or the features might bring to the user. Mm -hmm. My understanding of product-led growth is to initially, basically to get the product into the hands of the users as fast and as easily as possible. And of course, in a free, with a free type of an offer, either that be a free trial or a free for life freemium level. Um, does 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 Chameleon also help people help the marketers then upgrade or upsell a large base of freemium users into that first first tier? And if so, how how does that work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I would you know I would define product led growth as to be maybe even broader than than just focusing on freemium or even trial conversion. Uh, it's really using product as a channel to drive growth. So mm -hmm. that could have various touch points. That could be. How do we drive growth in a brand new user who kind of starts a trial or is part of the free plan? It could be how do we drive growth in upsells of plans? It could also be how do we drive virality or sharing from within the product? Uh, it could also be how do we drive expansion in a land and expand manner within the product? How do we drive invites to other people? So I think there's a, a various, you know, it can be how do we reduce churn, but it's really about how do we leverage the product in doing these things. And it's almost a, a repackaging of an old concept around self-service. We, we've always had self-service as a model, as a, as a method of driving growth and usage. So product-led growth is a kind of a, a reframing of that old uh, perspective. And community definitely helps with enabling more self-service and enabling product-led growth. And the way it does that is it allows product teams or product marketers to deliver these in-product experiences without writing code and being targeted and contextual. So I'll give you some examples. Let's say you have a feature that is locked for a user of a certain plan. Let's say they're on a silver plan, but this is a gold plan feature. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the product it's locked. Well, with Comedian, you can build an experience such that when they hover over a link to that feature or the navigation menu, or they click on that, you could launch a little in-product prompt with a video or some explanation of what that feature might entail. So you're giving them inside of the product where they are some more information to help them 
decide if they're interested and then they can click a button to say, hey, I am interested, turn this on for me. They could transact in the product. You could take them to the pricing page if the transaction is self-service mm-hmm. or you could route them to a salesperson to convert. So that's like an example of a potential upsell um, that you could do. Um, of course, there's a lot you can do just in terms of reducing friction. And Marketers are going to be really familiar with that. They've been doing that around website conversion. And what we're doing is trying to apply the same principles in products. So how do we reduce friction across the flow? So let's say you find that it's for people to upgrade, they need to find value in feature X. And in setting up feature X, there are some frictions. And that leads to half the people not successfully setting up feature X. And so what you if you can reduce that friction, get more people to set up feature X, you'll naturally drive more interest and more upsells. So again, with Chameleon, you can build a tooltip when in a certain point where someone's having friction, maybe they're confused by a term or they have to make a decision, they're not quite sure how to make that decision. You can just put that very easily, a tooltip in there or a little banner in there uh, to tell them kind of this is how you do something. Uh, Banners, it just reminds me of another good example. Uh, We've had customers use that to, to block usage or to persistently inform people about offers or upgrade opportunities. Um, and I think because when someone's in your product, that's when they have context. That's when they're thinking about your product. They're thinking about the v- workflow. They're seeing the value. It's a really good time to message them, engage them, and drive them to take action versus relying on email because they might be checking their email when they're out and about. They're traveling. They're commuting. They don't have time. They're not thinking about it. It's so noisy. So. The question is, you know, how can you do more of this messaging in the product? And Chameleon enables you to do that without requiring engineering capacity. So do you, that's a very good point about email because my observation is that still most SaaS onboarding happens through, uh, through email sequences. And I typically find that not very effective for the reasons that you just pointed out because I'm on my mobile device. I'm probably on the move. I'm just skimming through emails. And this is never one of my really important emails, you know. Um, it maybe, yeah, it does remind me that, oh yeah, I still have this uh, subscription and maybe, uh, my trial's running out or whatever, but I'm certainly not in the pro I'm almost never in the product at that moment. Does this replace the need for email? Does it supplement email? Um, how, how does an email campaign change if, if they're making really good use of these tool tips, uh, in the product? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think, I think. Each channel has its pros and cons. I think one of the strongest pros for email is that you can access people who are not in your product. So if you are looking to reactivate somebody or if you're looking to bring someone back into the product or sell them but they have never been in the product, you've got to use email or you've got to use ads or something else. Mm -hmm. Another really strong pro for email is that it's low investment. It's very easy to read an email. You can like browse it, scan it. And so I think marketers or product marketers or product teams need to lean into that which but that what i mean by that is when you're sending the email uh focus the use case around people who are less motivated and not ready to dive into the product so drive up motivation so instead of trying to explain how something works you know we think we like one of the ways that we like to help people think about this is there's two pieces as why someone should use your product and how someone should use your product and often when emails focus on how you should use your product they fail because it's hard to explain that in text in an email. So focus on the why they should care and why they should use your email, uh, use your product mm-hmm. in your email. So that means thinking about it, you know, fo- very focused on benefits, very focused on value, uh, you know, show case studies, show testimonials, show c- social proof and get people excited and motivated so that 
when they're seeing something they're like, oh yeah, you know, next mm-hmm. time I'm prompted or triggered, I will jump in. Yeah. Yeah. The second thing. No, no, I, yeah, I was going to agree. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've seen a lot of these onboarding emails that immediately pivot to product and, and they and they get very mm-hmm. feature heavy because they probably mm-hmm. assume that, oh, okay, I've already got, well, I've already got you into my trial. So you must have already, I've already basically sold sold you on the why mm-hmm. and now I have to tell you about the what. But actually that what you're just saying is no, not necessarily. You still have to keep selling them on the why, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And actually, um, even when you're in the product and onboarding somebody, that's one of my biggest tips is keep selling them on the why um, and make your onboarding more about product marketing than a how-to manual of how to use the product. Because most people now, we're spending less and less time on websites. We just want to get into the product. We're like, sign me up. I'll try it. Give it to me. Um, And then I'm in. And I haven't really spent much time figuring out how it works or what it's about or where it's exactly going to be useful for me. But maybe I have one use case or one job I want to complete. And when I'm in the product, I'll you know find some friction, uh, I'll hit some roadblocks. And what I need then is not necessarily a, a, a walkthrough or a guide of how to use the product, which you can build with Chameleon, but you want you want actually some motivation. So show me which you know for example a slide out of how many people succeeded or how easy it is to do this or how valuable it is to do this or how you can meet my needs to keep my motivation levels up. Because if my motivation levels are up, I'll keep exploring and I'll keep discovering and I'll find value. And when I find value, that gives me more motivation to keep going. So I think, you know, if there's one kind of change to onboarding that I would, you know, make across SaaS products in general is to is to switch a little bit away from more of the how do you use it to more of the why should I care and why is it going to be valuable to me? And then let me figure out how to use it, because generally products are fairly intuitive. And the reason that people drop off is like they, they their motivation store runs dry. They're just like, OK, I just I just don't see the value yet based on all the friction I've encountered. And so I'm going to drop off. So it's, I think there's a lot, lot of scope there for, for uh, user onboarding to improve by focusing a little bit more on the why than, than just sticking yep. to the how. There's a concept in product-led growth, which is, uh, I heard it fairly recently, which is the so-called time to first value, which generally, I don't know if, you're, if you've come across that. Uh, maybe Maybe you have. My understanding of that is, the faster you can, the faster that new user can experience value, either that's a light bulb moment or some kind of an aha or, or just simply a little bit of pleasure that, ah, this is doing what I was hoping it would do, whatever that is. But the time, that time gap to the first value is critically important because if a user can't get to that within a reasonable amount of time, they, they probably just won't ever come back. Um, but if you can get them there quickly, you know, this is one of the first major KPIs post post trial or or post freemium acquisition. Do you agree with that? And and what do you what do you think about this concept of time to first value? Yeah, I I think it's a I think it's a decent proxy. Um, I think time generally should be replaced by actions or activity. Um, we were talking about email a minute ago, and one of the things that often happens is that emails are based on time sequences of like, hey, you know, one day after sign up, send this, three days after sign up, send this. And that is an old way of doing it. And I think it's, uh, it's not the modern way of doing it. The modern way of doing it is being triggered by actions because it doesn't really matter how long has, has progressed. It depends how far I've got. So as soon as I've done some action, that's when I should get a follow-up email. And I think a similar concept should apply in the time to value. It doesn't really matter like how many days it takes, but really how quickly in terms of actions required, can I get value? So for example, 
I'm signing up and, you know, you have a product. Um, let's say it's some kind of um, music service, Spotify-esque. Um, and my, you know, value point that you've discovered is playing my first song. And that's like when I get value. Um, now, it doesn't matter if I play my first song uh, in three days or one day or a week. What matters is how much effort is required before I can play my first song, because that's going to correlate with how many people drop off. So mm-hmm. let's say I have a you know one version, which is a really long sign up form. And then I have to go and pick from artists. Then I have to go at, search the artists, find a song and then play it. There's a lot of work required and maybe i'll have a lot of motivation because someone's told me this is an amazing service and i'll go through it some people will drop off so if i can reduce the friction or the actions let's say the sign up form is much simpler and i get asked for what am i pick my favorite genre from five and then i get a song to play uh this is just an example it probably wouldn't work but but you know if it, no, if it was actually that does, that does simple, work actually i've gone through these types of so, yes i think they do work <laughs> For music, yeah. So if it's if it's much simpler, and then I play my first song and I get value, then I'm much more likely to stay, and more people proportionately will stick around. So when you think about time to value, the the advice I would give for folks is a there's going to be many points of value. Find some of these first ones, and then map out in detail what is what are the actions required, the specific user actions, and it should be at the level of like user has to read this paragraph, user has to click this. User has to make a decision between these five options. User has to so and so map out all of those actions and see how long, see how how heavy that is. Like how many actions do you have before people get value? And see can you reduce that? And that's a much more tangible way to attack time to value. Um, and and we we've actually written a really good in depth guide on using friction logging, which is a really good framework to be able to discover this process, these actions, and which, which actions are most cognitive heavy. Um, so the friction logging is a great, um, framework for that and your team can do it and help you identify quick wins for improving, um, conversion in a product funnel. So you can check that out, but yeah, that's kind of how I think about time love, to value or, or love improving that conversion in a product. Funnel. I love that term friction logging. So does that, does that literally mean, um, really honing in on, on those things that are most likely to, to, to derail a user's, to, to derail a user's, uh, a path towards that value. So when you see just basically uh, somebody dropping off because they just simply can't, they just won't make it through this 300 word paragraph of terms and conditions. So maybe it's time to get rid of that or, or whatever. Is that, is that what, what that means? Uh, friction logging? Yeah, it's essentially a, a technique. Um, it's employed by companies like Stripe um, and others, but essentially you'll pick a path or a flow. Let's say, let's say for, for argument's sake, it's new user activation from sign up to song played. And what you'll do is you'll go through in excruciating detail all of the steps required, and you will highlight which ones are most frictionful, which might have caused me to turn away, are somewhat frictionful, which is like, ah, it's kind of annoying, but I'll keep going, and which are delightful. Um, and so um, you'll write, you'll record your session, you'll write out all of these steps, you'll do some highlighting to identify this. And you might, you know, multiple people on your team might do this. 
And then you'll aggregate, okay, well, these are the highest friction steps in my flow. And then you'll go from there into brainstorming solutions or ideas of how to solve that friction. And like I said, there's a, we have a post which explains this in detail, has a video tutorial, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's a great exercise for anyone to employ because it breaks down how do we think about where do we find opportunities for growth uh, and what do we look to, to reduce friction in, in, whether it's in a product flow or maybe even in a, in a website conversion flow. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to ask another, another uh, a little bit more on the data science side of things. I, I actually had a discussion with a, a data science guy recently who had been building algorithms to determine which specific uh, actions, signals, or combinations of, of engagement with a new app would lead ultimately lead to best, the best retention rates, lowest churn rates, and the, and the highest lifetime value of a particular cohort of users. And what he told me was that, and he was looking mostly at, uh, at in, this, in this case, he was looking mostly at B2C games, but I wonder if some of this could apply to B2B as well. What he found was that it was not necessarily time to first value or, or um, a particular a particular action, but it was rather habitual use. And what he found in, the, in, in his exact case was that someone someone who used the the app for seven consecutive days was ninety five percent likely to to actually be in there again for seven more consecutive days, and that was by far the best predictor of, of lifetime value or future lifetime value of that user, as opposed to however active they were in the first 24 hours doing anything, um, or maybe the first 48 hours. I thought that was very interesting because I've always assumed that, oh, you, we need to just really try to drive them towards activity as soon as possible, and that's going to lead us to value. But his, his findings through real algorithm uh, building was that it was all about habitual use. Have you ever seen that, like where habitual use over, over in a way really is a stronger signal for value than, than just simply a set of, uh, of actions? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's either or because I think one leads to the other. So, um, you know, in SaaS, like monthly active users, daily, you know, weekly active users, or in B2C, daily active users is a, is a really important component of engagement and retention for a reason. Like, yes, if you can have somebody using your product regularly, um, that's going to drive to long-term retention, to reduction of churn. Um, and so that I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't, I don't think that necessarily surprises me. But the question is, what leads to that? You know, that's almost like a, a lagging indicator. It's like, okay, or, or it's, it's not really a lever you can pull. Like, how do you change habitual use? Uh, and I think that when you break into that and look into that, that's what's going to help you figure out, well, it's probably a combination of activity and aha moments or some other triggers that will cause someone to find value. And if they find value, then they'll come back. Um, now, w- one interesting thing is that when you ha- when, even if you find value, you sometimes do need a trigger to act on that, on that value. And uh, there's a, a great um, psychologist who, who is a professor of persuasive technology called BJ Fogg, um, who writes about this and his kind of behavior model around like, well, what causes people to act and behave in the ways they do? And one aspect is motivation. The other aspect is ability. Can they act? But then there is a curve. And if you are on one side of the curve, then a trigger will cause you to act. If you're on the other side of the curve, which means you have too low ability or your motivation is too low, a trigger will not cause you to act. So sometimes you might still need triggers. And that's why games do a good job of notifications and follow-ups, etc. But I think 
to become a habitual user, and Nirael talks about this in, in forming habits, it's, you know, there's a loop. You have to take action. You have to get reward. And then once you've had that reward, the dopamine hit of like, oh, I found some value of some aha moment, that's when you ask the user to do some work to further um, personalize, further uh, more tightly loop them into the product. So if, for example, let's say, you know, for a new user, setting my profile picture is a component in my kind of activation flow or something that's encouraged in the beginning, you probably see that in many SaaS applications, right? Okay. Um, setting a profile picture. So now what teams probably know is people that set their profile picture are more likely to stick around. But what makes them set their profile picture? When should you do it? Well, it's probably not a high value item for me to do is to set profile picture. Like, how does it help me? It doesn't really help me too much. So the time to ask, to make that ask is once I've got some value. Maybe I have played my first song. I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. Then I get the ask, hey, set your general preferences or set your profile picture or set your brand image. It's like, okay, cool. I'm ready to do that because I've got some value. I'm ready to invest in this platform. So I'll go and do that profile picture. And that in turn helps me become more attached to this software. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's that loop that Nirael talks about, that, which is kind of that, how do that's you probably the habits. more emotional, irrational side. If, if, if I see my face on that product, it's, it becomes my, it really becomes mine then. I mean, that's, when I put my face there, I think it's it's like a it's like an emotional commitment that I'm I'm ready to stick yeah. with this now. And it's it's a psychological principle. It's not even irrational. It's psychological. When we invest in things and when we make decisions, we're much more likely to follow through in commitments we've made because we we don't want to break our self image. We don't want to know that we were wrong in making that investment or choosing this option. And so we're much much more likely to continue to pursue actions that validate our prior decision making uh, and so that's why if you're you know if you're making that choice to put your you know put your brand in something put your face on something you're like okay cool this is the, this is the right thing for me i want to keep going that's fascinating and i imagine that with all the customers that you have and the amount of data that you have access to you can probably you can probably reveal some amazing trends like a i don't know when, when people set their when people customize their profile picture, they become X percent. Uh, the, the churn rate drops from this to this. Uh, or do you have this kind of data? Are you doing this kind of analysis? Because it would be fascinating to be publishing that kind of stuff. Yeah, we, we do. We do analysis on some, some data sets. So the data that we predominantly collect is how our end users, which is our customers users, are interacting with the experiences our customers have built using Chameleon. So those experiences are the kind of the modals, the banners, the walkthroughs, the microsurveys, the checklists, the widgets, all of these in-product patterns to help communicate and showcase the product uh, and how do they engage. So, so we have some, uh, we actually published uh, uh, and we have for the second year running published a kind of a benchmarks report on kind of what works and what doesn't work in terms of these in-product experiences. And there's like some simple, you know, more obvious things. Like sometimes people will build really long walkthroughs. They just don't work. Keep to a four-step maximum walkthrough because they're, they're, they, they, yeah, the four, after the fourth step, there's a lot stronger drop-off. So for any team that's building a eight-step walkthrough, here's everything in my product that you might want to see or check out maybe reconsider. Um, well, and there's other uh, data points around that, how media helps and doesn't help. So we, ha we have a data set and we're, we're doing, we try to publish a report every year about that. And we, we have, we have something on our website about it. Mm -hmm. 
do you all ever do any just direct consulting for any of your customers to just really help them do this the right way if they if they've never done it before? Yeah, we do. Actually, it's part of, you know, working with us is that we we found that the market is still early and there's still a lot of expertise to be shared. And so we try to work in a real partnership model with our customers. We find that leads to the most success where we suggest and guide ways that they can uh, be most effective using in-product experiences, maybe where they should focus in terms of friction. Uh, we run workshops like the friction logging workshop and other kind of webinars to help coach our customers. So I think we definitely are trying to employ that approach and we're trying to productize them more. And I think it's one of the things that we're trying to use to differentiate ourselves is, hey, we want to be your partners that really help you succeed, um, not just give you a tool or a platform to use. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you now about um, how, how this can work for reactivating, reactivating inactive users. And I want to talk about when a a company or, or a SaaS product tries to use a new feature release or maybe a new version release to, to reactivate uh, an otherwise inactive base of, of customers or really anybody. And it could also be using that as a means to try to upgrade some, some free users onto a paid plan. I imagine that that's also a time when, when Chameleon can, can be very, very useful. Can you talk to me about how, how marketers are using Chameleon to uh, to take advantage of, of new feature releases and announcements around that? Yeah. So, you know, when people today send emails out about a new feature or a launch, they often have a CTA, which is like, go check it out. Well, there's two <laughs> kinds. Sometimes it's a CTA to a blog post or a, a, a help doc. And sometimes it's a CTA to into the product. Hey, we wanted you to go back into the product and try it out. But what happens in the case when it's back into the product is most likely you'll just end up back in the product. And there's no landing page in the product for you to see. So there's a, is a disconnect between what you're seeing on an email. And we know that good marketing, it's like when, you, when you're clicking through from something, the thing that you're seeing after the click should resemble and should mirror the thing that you've read when you clicked, right? Right, it should just your expand page on that. Mirror your ads. Right, your, your landing page should mirror your ads. And, and, but what happens is when you're doing CTAs into the product, you're just dropping people into this product and expecting them to figure it out. And so it's hard to really drive conversion. So one thing you can do with Chameleon is in that link, instead link to a Chameleon experience inside of your product. And so what happens is that you still, they still go into the product, but instead of just being dropped in, they get met with a Chameleon experience. That could be a modal. It's like, hey, glad you're excited about this feature. Let's show you where to, how to use it. And it could start a walkthrough or it could be, here's how to get started with this feature and it can point and highlight that part. So you have a transition from the email that you just saw and you're interested in this feature into the product, but then you're handheld from that point to actually getting into the feature you're interested in and activating. So mm -hmm. that's one way that marketers can leverage comedian or in-product experiences to bridge the gap between sending an email to inactive users to actually getting them to start using the feature they're excited about. Mm-hmm. I want to return up to, I think, where we started off. You gave an example at the beginning of, and maybe this, this is one of the things that motivated you even, even to build this, was your frustration with Asana's help, help center, right? Um, help center was great. I just had to keep using it. <laughs> right, right. And I have the same, as a user, I have the same experience, which is I always appreciate a good help center. I always appreciate really good, thorough documentation. But I would much rather 
just not leave the product. I really would much rather just get my answer in a really fast, easy way right then and there. Um, are you, how does your, how does Chameleon complement a help center? How does a help, how does a help center change if you've got really good in-product uh, tips that can better answer those questions right, right then and there on the spot? Yeah, I think it's complementary, just like with email. I don't think one replaces the other. I think you still need help documentation and detailed write-ups of things. Um, the ways that it can complement is that what often happens is that someone gets stuck on something in the product. And then some people, some proportion of people will be highly motivated and they'll go to the help center and try and search it out or they'll message chat. But some people will not be as highly motivated and they'll be like, I'll come back to this. I'll figure this out later. We've all done it. We're like, ah, oh, okay, let me do something else. And those people are really at risk of, of churn or bounce because they're like, okay, we didn't figure this out. And then it's, it's a high barrier to come back to it and figure it out again. So one of the ways that you can solve this is providing contextual links into the help center. So let's say you're, you're, you're confused. You know, you're, we're in the Spotify use case again, and you're, you're not quite sure what shuffle means. What does shuffle mean? It's obvious, but what does shuffle mean? Um, and so maybe you'll go and, you know, go and figure it out. Or maybe there's a little tooltip that says, hey, you know, shuffle works in this way right then and there. And you're like, ah, I get it. Let me go ahead and play it. Or it might, or you might be more, you might be confused by something else. You might be confused about sh a shared playlist. How do I make a shared playlist? And that's not something just as simple as explaining a taxonomy. It's like, okay, well, there's a few flows to that. So you could have, with, it, with using Chameleon, a little uh, widget, which shows you some key search terms of like, you know, how do you do these things? And it says, okay, how do, how do I create a shared, shared playlist? And that's just a walkthrough and just walks you through the three steps required to create a shared playlist. So that's a really good way to uh, provide some interactive teaching in the product as people are, are, are confused. And finally, the other way is to, like I was mentioning, better link to help the article. So let's say, you, you want to explain shuffle, but actually there's a lot more to explain based on where you're clicking shuffle from or what you're shuffling. You could say, well, shuffle, it means this. Click here to learn more in the tooltip right next to the word shuffle. And then they click that and it opens the shuffle article in your help center. So in that way, what you're doing is you're making the gateway into the help center very specific and very contextual. So users don't have to go through the friction of finding the help center, searching within that, finding the right article. So you're just bringing that into the product and into the product experience. So those are three ways that you can leverage Chameleon to more closely align your help center into the product and make your user's journey yeah. easier. I think you just put your finger on your finger on one of the main small friction elements of this whole thing, which is, for me at least, is a lot of times I get stumped on what should I even search for? I go to the help center and then, and then of course, I'm staring at the search bar. But how do I actually describe this problem? I'm actually, I can't even maybe put it into words sometimes, but if I could just go back to that part of the product and, and if there was a tooltip that would take me there, I don't have to actually come up with a search term, which is, that, that's definitely a point of friction. Um, I don't know how to, I don't know how to phrase this the right way or, and a lot of the, I think a lot of the search results and help centers are also rather, um, I don't know, unsophisticated because it's just simply keyword based. So if you don't have that right keyword in your search query, uh, it, you might not get to the answer or you might go to some generic FAQs and no, that's not the answer. I got to find it somewhere else. I uh, just, uh, just a funny story. Cause since you mentioned Asana, we, we used to use Asana and now we're using ClickUp. 
And I've been searching for the last few days now of just how to group my tasks, my, my own tasks in ClickUp, uh, not, not by date or, or by any other method, the common methods, but I want to group them by who has assigned them to me. I want to group them by the, by the assign or. I just can't figure it out and I can't find it in anywhere in the help center. Um, I've asked my team. I'm just totally stumped. And, and for me, this is exactly how I want to, I want to go into my tasks and I know everything at this point is overdue. So now I just want to group them by who has assigned them. And, and then I'll try to batch them just to make one person happy by doing a lot of the tasks that day that they assigned to me. Um, and I can't do it. And I'm just banging my head into the wall. And, uh, I'm not asking. I mean, it you sounds like you, you have, <laughs> but you know, it's it's an example. I can't yeah, find the. Answer. I mean, we we all we've all experienced that. Yeah, yeah, we've all experienced that, and I think that's like a common frustration. And some sometimes we're motivated enough to go and figure it out, uh, or sometimes it becomes the seed for us to leave the product. It's like that's my impression. It's like it's frustrating, and I can't find the answer. Can't find the solution. Um, and that's the start of a, you know, of you slowly untangling from that solution. So it's really important to drive customer experience at all times and to find, you know, quicker, quicker ways to reduce that friction. Yeah. All right. Polka, do you mind if I pivot over to a couple of personal items that I find quite interesting from your, from your bio? Yeah, sure. sure. Um, are you still, uh, I know you, you were, are you now currently based in London? I'm actually based or, in the Bay Area. Oh, you're okay. You were based in London, but but you're a Liverpool fan. Uh, I that? grew. Yeah, I grew. That's right. I grew up in. I grew up in London. I actually first moved to the UK to Liverpool. Uh, and day oh, one of school, I got asked, uh, you know, Liverpool or Everton. Like that was the question, and I had no idea what Everton was because it was my day one. I didn't wasn't familiar with the city. Never mind the city's footballing clubs. Um, and so, yeah, I chose Liverpool. And, yeah, I've been a supporter since. Um, not a great time to talk about them right now, but, you know, mm-hmm. it is what it is. Yeah. That that must have been a pre- a, a pretty pressure, high-pressure moment. <laughs> you, you better answer correctly. Yeah. If, <laughs> yeah. I, I know how that, uh, how yeah, that might feel. Like the, uh, I'm in a heavy, heavy football environment myself. And... Um, the answer to that question dictates a whole lot of things. Um, and That's I also right. Just, it dictated my group of friends. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that led, leads you down a certain path um, that, that you'll be on for a while. Um, I, I'd love to know a little bit more also about about your work in, in India with with uh, helping, helping some of these unemployed youth uh, to, to start up businesses in rural India. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So after university, I went and lived uh, in a small town or a village in India in rural Rajasthan, which is Western India, um, for a year, working with this uh, NGO, non-governmental organization um, called IndyCore. And the the goal was to help uh, folks who maybe were of Indian origin, but had grown up in the West to reconnect uh, to uh, India through service work. Um, and it was a really transformative experience, um, you know, m- more so for me than for anyone else. And I'm sure people that have done this can, can empathize with that. Um, but yeah, we spent, I spent a year um, trying to look for solutions for high unemployment amongst young people in this area. Um, and they were semi-educated, um, had, you know, often gone to college, but for a variety of reasons that, you know, there wasn't, weren't very many great work opportunities. So 
who tried to explore what could be done and in the end developed a um, a curriculum, an entrepreneurship curriculum that was instituted in a local um, college uh, where they started training people through entrepreneurship. And they also uh, came, we would help them start a um, a uh, a grant program or, or a, uh, an award program for business ideas. Uh, so the goal there in both of these cases was to help people move away from their traditionally mental model of looking for job opportunities and looking especially for government-based public sector job opportunities, which they thought were safe and reliable, to being a bit more risk-taking and a bit more entrepreneurial, um, which I think is you know a foundation in terms of solving some of the problems that exist in any society is to have creative mm-hmm. people feel empowered to, to tackle that. So that was our, you know, a very small, um, small kind of um, influence or impact I thought we were making there. But um, yeah, it was really fascinating for myself because I think I learned a lot about what does change mean? What is it that I'm striving for? You know, what is good? Um, and what is my role in that? So yeah, it was a really, pretty fascinating experience. Mm-hmm. Great. And I'm, the last thing I'm a, I'm a bit curious about is uh, is the meditation uh, because it's something I've, I've um, dabbled with, but never have quite figured out fully. But how often? How often do you meditate? Trying to meditate daily, at least an hour today. Uh, at this at this point, um, it's definitely a challenge, but it's a journey. It's a journey for us all, and a big part of that is like getting back on the on the stu- on the cushion. It's kind of like. Yeah, you're gonna fail, um, but how, you know how quickly can you can you revert? So I think yeah, that's the goal. I can't say I always meditate, you know, daily an hour, but it's the it's the intention. Do you normally do it in the morning? I do try to do it in the morning, but I'm also playing around with doing some in the evening. Um, so I did 30 minutes today uh, this morning. Um, also, you know, my my calls, I have work calls that start at 7 a.m. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit uh, tight sometimes, especially recently with the clocks moving forward. But um, yeah, some in the morning, some in the evening. Mm-hmm. For for someone like me who's who's trying to to get better at this, would you suggest that I start with smaller time increments and then work work my way up? That's what I've heard from some people. It's a good question. Um, I think there's a few approaches to it. Um, I think people can start with, you know, the programs that apps like Calm and Headspace promote. Um, I think if that resonates, great. Um, you could start with more mindfulness activities. And mindfulness activities, for example, when you're on a walk, just really listening to everything that you can hear on the walk and just focus on listening at that time um, and just be very, very aware of listening. Or you could be very, very aware of the steps you're taking on a walk. Um, or when you're, um, maybe when you're washing the dishes, being very aware of like the sensations and what you're feeling in your hands. Um, so those maybe there might be m- mindfulness activities that might resonate with you. And, you know, that might be a path in. Um, the other alternative might be that actually you go on a retreat. Uh, it's hard to do right now, but maybe when they open up again, um, is to be fully immersed. And you get fully immersed in a week or 10 days. That's how I learned. Uh, meditation because in that full immersion you really notice the difference in the value in that short period which provides me at least a lot more motivation to practice um Mm -hmm. if you if i try to do it 30 minutes a week or 10 minutes a day i may not see the difference in my life and that means it's i have to be have a lot of faith and belief that this is good for me but if i Mm -hmm. go to a retreat for seven days and i see 
even some, something as simple as my power of concentration being very different from day zero, day one to day seven, that will show me, hey, this is what's possible. And so that might provide me motivation to continue. So I think it's a few ways in. I'm not mm -hmm. a teacher. I don't yeah. know the right answers for anyone. So. Well, thanks for sharing that. And um, just before we wrap up, was there anything that, that I didn't ask you that you would like to share with our audience? No, I think your questions are great. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I feel we covered a lot of different topics um, and I really hope your audience enjoys it. Oh, I'm sure they will. And and everyone check out Chameleon. And I think that this is really this is really the, the future of, of not just SaaS, but I believe um, product-led marketing and, and really putting the product at the core of your marketing really is is the future. And I think it's it's great what you all are doing and, and I look forward to following along with your future success, Full Kid. Yeah, thanks, Paris. I appreciate that. All right. Thanks a lot for being with me today and, and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Pleasure. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, dot online. Have a great day.